so this is this is a back-to-back recording today, but mm-hmm. um, um, the previous Sunday here was Divine Mercy Sunday. Yeah. And I preached um, the same homily I preach every Divine Mercy Sunday. Okay. It's the one thing I do every... I don't re, I don't have it written down anywhere, but I, I know what I want to say, that we find our identity in our wounds. Mm-hmm. Right? That the... Just as the apostles, rec- essentially the apostles recognize Jesus through his wounds. That's only after that he shows them his wounds that they rejoice that it's the Lord. Yeah. And then Jesus says, has the father sent me, so I send you. Mm. But then the, the disciples go out, but they don't go out as Jesus is sent. And so I've always seen their, their declaration to Thomas. We have seen the Lord as a brag, like, hey. <laughs> we saw we saw Jesus. And did it <laughs> I like it. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why Thomas can't believe, because the church isn't being sent as Jesus is sent, mm-hmm. right? And that only when the church embraces Jesus's be form of being sent, which is to find identity in our wounds, as the place of God's glory, can the church actually fulfill her mission? Yeah. That, that 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 I'm like that needs to be said every Divine Mercy Sunday. Nice. <laughs> so, but I was like, I didn't really advertise it a ton or anything. Um, but we did a Divine Mercy service. I did, yeah, a lot of parishes like to do this. Did you guys? Yeah, do we one? did one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's always a nice thing to do. So, I, I, my plan was it was very simple this year. I didn't involve a choir or anything like that. I just said, uh, I'll expose Blessed Sacrament at two o'clock. I put a little bulletin insert a couple weeks ago about what Divine Mercy Sunday is and the promises attached with it. Um, I said, I'll hear confessions from two to three. And then at 2.55, I got to get out so I can come out. We'll do the devotions and mm-hmm. benediction. And I'll repose the Blessed Sacrament. If there's anyone left over, I'll go back and hear more confessions. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, I was expecting maybe 50 people to show up to this thing. I wasn't expecting huge numbers. I didn't really push it that yeah. much. We ended up having like 100 people. <laughs> oh, nice. Wow. And I heard 55 confessions. <laughs> How long did that take? Two and a half hours. Woo. <laughs> I was supposed to go to uh, I was supposed to go to Victoria that day mm-hmm. where I'm now. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go on Monday morning. I'm too yeah. tired. I, yeah, I, it, for real. I did not. I did not expect that number. And wow. I said, so I've learned already for next year. See if you can find a priest to come and help out with confessions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it was very exhausting, and you know, obviously, I can't say what happens in this confession. However, I can say like. Jesus did some good work that day in good. people's hearts, which yeah. is always makes it worth it. And mm-hmm. but when you see that big numbers, you're like, I got really like, here's here's brief advice, here's your penance. Yeah. No advice, here's your penance. Mm-hmm. And I was giving up more or less the same penance that day because it's Divine sure. Mercy Sunday. So, um, but uh, it was it was like I was like, wow, this is really cool. I didn't expect it because at the same time, it's like <laughs> it's like during Lent. Uh, I, I I don't I don't think I've mentioned it on here before, but yeah, I was like during Lent, I was like, okay, I'm adding all these extra confession times. If they are used sufficiently, I will add more as we get close to Easter. That makes sense. They were not they were not used sufficiently, so I did not add. Yeah. The Tuesday, Holy Tuesday, they have a half hour confessions before the seven p.m. mass. I show up to the church, and there are twenty five people in line. <laughs> and I said to everyone, I will. Sp-, I said. Number kind, no stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said, so that's what you have to do to get. And I said, and I said, I will give no advice. I will give penance. You say act of contrition, absolution. And I'm going to pound through as many of these as I can. Yeah, 
but I cannot hear confessions afterwards because I've got two practices for the Holy Weekend for the Triduum after this. Yeah. So, sorry. That's what you have to do. Um, this is what it is, right? I got through 18 confessions in a half hour. Whew. <laughs> I was like, wow. Because I had to. Like, yeah. It just, it had to get done, right? So, but it was, uh, I was just like, my, my little thing is, folks, is use the times that are given and priests will always add more. Yeah. But use the time that's given first. Right. Yeah, don't put it off. <laughs> don't put it off till the Holy Week. I don't, I've never quite understood that. But anyways, I mean, I get it to an extent, but um, but the Divine Mercy thing definitely made up for it, too. And cool. that's the weird thing. It's like, I don't want to do a bunch of confessions during the, the Triduum because I'm like, you need the eight days before Divine Mercy Sunday at the latest to receive the grace of that day. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Anyways, it was, but it, but the the fifty five was really good. I, I'm always amazed how many people come out for that. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I've cause I haven't done Divine Mercy devotions in the parish for a while or anything like that. And I decided that um, <clears throat> what I think I'm going to do is um, for benediction on Fridays. Now we do benediction at four p.m. But I think mm-hmm. I'm going to start doing Divine Mercy devotions at that point too. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Get some so, devotional life in there. I like get some, it. Get, get some good old devotion stuff going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was but that was really good. That was a nice little grace. And now I'm on break for a few days, mm-hmm. which is good. nice because I need it. I, I was kind of I was kind of burning out there. Oh, the for end. sure. Yeah. I, I was getting being the only short and grumpy with my parishioners, <laughs> and I kind of I did apologize about that. My pastor's notes. I said I was a little grumpy. If I was, I'm sorry. I was, but I also did say stuff around like you know we just don't have as many priests anymore. Yeah, it's tough. And uh, I, one little thing, I, I'm i getting bolder about things. <laughs> oh, yeah? And I said, we have to remember, like, I said, I, I need to ask an honest question. When was the last time St. Peter's has brought forth a vocation? Hmm. I said, I have been in this diocese for a while now, and I know every diocesan priest who has been alive when I've been here, who have now passed on, I said, I've never met a priest who's come from St. Peter's. Mm. And I said, this parish has been around for 62 years. Has there been no vocations from this parish? Ooh. I said, this is not, I said, we need to change that. Yeah. It's a good challenge. Change that because if we can't provide priests, then there won't be priests here to serve us. So anyways, it's important to say these things, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, I'm getting, getting feisty in a good way. <laughs> getting feisty in a good way. <laughs> good. Good, good. Speaking of feisty, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. Well, since we're talking about Divine Mercy uh, Sunday, which was two yeah. weeks ago, technically, sort of, um, and uh, I'm definitely, a lot of uh, my openings are going to be about Holy Week because there's so much stuff happened. Um, but anyway, for Divine Mercy, I had a Father Harrison tribute homily, basically. Uh-oh. Uh, so it's it's part uh, Father Harrison tribute, part a homily I heard while I was in seminary. And just, it blew my mind. I used it all the time. Where this priest was like, um, basically, of course, Thomas doubted. He was outside the church. Hmm. When the church was gathered, they saw the body of Christ. Thomas was not with them. He was not mm-hmm. in the church. And then when he comes back to the church, then he sees the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, kind of talked about how, like, uh, the reason why Thomas didn't need to put his hands or his, uh, in the side or the hands of Jesus was because he's now a part of that body because he's been right. 
joined back to the church. So mm-hmm. I, I use that to talk about um, basically mediation. Um, yes. It really was. It was the, the entire thing was about uh, mediation, how it actually brings us closer to God. Um, mm-hmm. And through you know the sacraments, through um, all these things are God bringing his presence close to us. Mm-hmm. And so it was a homily basically about the church um, and yes. everything it does. And I was though it was funny. So I was happy with it. Because I had the 11 o'clock and the 7.30 p.m. mass. I was really happy with the 11 o'clock. The 7.30 p.m. one, I was a little tired. It was a little messier. It was fine. But every once in a while, um, a my old professor from my college days, he's a philosophy professor, will be at mass. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I was talking a little bit more philosophy in this one, and I was like, uh-oh, I hope I didn't say any wrong words. <laughs> he's always been very kind Hegel, to me. Uh, Heidegger, Kant. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he's, a, I mean, most of the time, he's just a very devotional man who's just there yeah, to yeah, pray yeah. and receive the Eucharist and stuff. So but yeah, I got yeah, yeah. a little nervous, a little nervous. Yeah. Also, oddest thing in the world, there was some dude in a collar who was, who was at Mass. Oh. And he came in with what I assumed was his wife. So I don't know what was going on there. Anything uh, but deacon, maybe. Um, yeah. I, ordinary, who knows? ordinary priest. And I was going to look forward to say like hello to him afterwards, but I didn't get a chance to say hi. Right. Uh, but I was like, oh, that's odd. So you never know who's going to walk into your church. It is interesting. Like when you know someone, a certain person's going to be there or something like that, you suddenly get like nervous or yeah. whatever about how you're going to preach. And you're just like, like if you know like there's going to be a, someone, like if you're preaching a hop, I remember once uh, we, we had this, we, hopefully they'll start up next year again, is we had this diocesan family summer weekend thingy at a, at yeah. a campsite here. And uh, I was asked to preach the Saturday morning. I was asked to celebrate the Saturday morning mass. Well, our bishop showed up, and he is, so he has to celebrate it. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, well, he's going to preach. That's fine. I, I chucked my homily out of my head, and that's fine. And the bishop looks over at me. He goes, Harrison, weren't you supposed to preach? I said, oh, it's okay, bishop. You're, you're here. You can preach. He goes, no, no, you go ahead. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it was okay. But you get nervous all of a sudden because you're just like, wait, now someone who I respect or someone in authority or whatever it might be is listening intently it's, to every word that comes out of my mouth. Yeah, I think I would feel that same way if my bishop just showed up for something. Um, but it will be funny because, you know, I'm very comfortable preaching, happy to do yeah. it. Um, but then there'll be someone like a family member who came in and it's like, I travel all this way to see you. I'm like, wow, I hope my homily isn't bad. <laughs> like, this is the one experience you get. But it, it's a very human kind of reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, well, let's get into some theological emergencies. Thank you for calling Clerically Speaking. If this is truly a theological emergency, please dial 1 at any time. Hi, I flushed my goldfish down the toilet, and I wanted to know, is that a sin? Theological Emergency. We'll take your call at 412-912-7995. Father Harrison, Father Anthony, my name is James, and I am kind of freaking out here because I've just taken over the job of running a Catholic retreat center, and I'm going through the library here, and there's a book that I don't know, I don't know what to do with. It says it's the Clown Ministry Handbook, the original book of Clown Ministry Basics with skits for service and worship. Uh, my question is, does this go in the garbage or in the recycling? Please help. Dear James, if that is your real name, first, mm-hmm. 
Sorry that it took us a few months to get to your emergency. We're going uh, the backlog. We're going to backlogs here. But secondly, secondly, you neither recycle nor put in the garbage. You burn her. You, you burn her so hard. You burn that book <laughs> so hard. Um, you ensure that every unclean spirit that is trapped inside said book is released to, to whence it came whence they came because uh, such atrocities should not have any opportunity whatsoever of ever being read by anyone ever again and burning is the best way to ensure this plus there's something very cathartic about burning a book like that so that's my that's my answer you know, I respect that answer because you know you know book burning you know that's a delightful Catholic thing to do every once in a while burn a few books um, <laughs> but I'm gonna disagree Oh. Um, so for those who are unaware, I, I, I'm grateful that you're unaware, but clown masses were a thing for a while. For whatever reason, a lot of parishes took like one line of scripture where St. Paul says he's a fool for Christ, and they figured that meant we should have clown masses. And it's utterly sacrilegious. Was that, was that what, what got this whole thing going? Yeah, Seriously? I believe so. Yeah, and I don't know how exactly it became so widespread, but it was not an uncommon thing. There's a chance there might be one or two parishes hanging on to this sort of thing. Um, but like, yeah, as I mean, it's funny, but it's also utterly horrifying. But I don't think you should burn that book. I would like that book to be sent to me. I want to make a collection of all these books because one day when I'm an old priest in a seminary, I want to bring out all these books and make the seminarians look at them. It's like, this is what happens if we are not vigilant. This is what you are <laughs> saved from. It needs to be a warning to future generations that no matter how healthy or strong you think the church is, we are one generation from clown masses at all times. We must stand at the barricades. We must stand in the watchtowers. We must protect our people and our own souls. Because if not, clown mass. <laughs> and as you say this, you're putting on your clown makeup and you become the joker and you become and you become the joker. I become the joker. If if there if there's to be a clown mass, if there's to be a clown mass in my diocese, I will become the joker. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's funny because yeah. like I love going to retreat houses because you'll find little gems like this, like the craziest stuff. Oh, it's delightful. I revel it's, in it. It's it's uh it's very unique it's very unique it's uh yeah it's oh my gosh i i have i'm very have you ever actually experienced one i have i have watched uh some on youtube not the whole thing because i literally get physically sick i can't watch the whole thing but i've yeah 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 i have not i've not i've seen maybe yeah little clips here and there and i just want to barf it really uh, is I'm it's like physically I've painful actually i've always been grateful that i've been largely um protected from weird liturgy yeah largely mm -hmm. except except i have i have seen puppets you have seen puppets mm -hmm. i've seen a lot of props before um yeah. never experienced yeah. liturgical dance but that wasn't an uncommon thing no either. I've, seen, I've, I've seen that it's bad at an, or at an ordination oh yeah horrifying i'll never i'll never recover so, I so, respect the burning of the book, but I, I, I think it should be a, a, a totem, a warning. <laughs> Never forget. Good. 
Hi, this is Carrie in West Virginia, and yes, that's my real name. The idea of this question came to me in a rather disturbing dream, but I've boiled it down to a purely theological question for you. I know we are to confess in kind and number all serious sin we are conscious of having committed. My question picks on that word conscious. Are there any theological implications of unconfessed sin in the case of total memory loss? If I commit a sin that fulfills the conditions for a mortal sin and then suffer total and permanent amnesia of the period of time in which I committed that sin, I obviously can't bring it to the sacrament of penance through no fault of my own. So am I then absolved? Should anyone with this kind of memory loss go to confession just in case? What if the memory loss is less clear-cut, say, my conscience has been dulled to such an extent that my serious sin didn't feel like a big deal to me and was therefore easily forgotten in the busyness of life? Thanks for taking my call. Well, Carrie, first, the fact that you have to say that this is your real name actually makes me doubt that it actually is. Absolutely. Like, you got a little defensive there. Carrie Dolph protests too much. Right. It's like you're actually trying to protect your real identity. Yeah. Mm-mm. Like, why not just, why not, why not just, I don't know. Am I wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right. I am very suspicious of the so-called okay. Carrie from okay. so-called West Virginia. Why would there be a West Virginia? That seems superfluous. Is there an East Virginia? No. So then why is there a West one? Who knows? Whom's this to say? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. So, anyways, anyways. So, in regards to this this question around conscious of of unconfessed sins and memory loss and, and all that jazz, okay. First thing is, um, if one has total memory loss, you're not you have to actually be conscious of it. Like this is the thing; it's saying you have to. So, if you're not conscious of it, you can't be held responsible for not even confessing it because. Nor would it, I'd say, let's say like, okay, so let's say the amnesia patient goes to confession and says, I committed this stuff. That's all I can remember. Um, so for these and all my sins, I can't remember. I'm truly sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. They can't be conscious of it because they have no conscious memory of it. Yeah. And, and so they're going there with a contrite heart in that moment. And let's say they murdered someone, but don't remember it. Um, but because they're saying, I don't remember it. Like they're saying, I... I'm sorry for anything I've done. Mm-hmm. Then you're good. Like it, it, the the whole point of staying conscious of is really really important there. Um, and so you would be you would be absolved. Um, and you know, let's or if you have that dulled conscience, you know, okay, fine. It it kind of goes into the past there after a while. Um, but if you're going, but again. There has to be some sort of intention of actually wanting to withhold the sin. Mm-hmm. That's the that that's where things get dangerous, because confession's not uh, it's not a it's not a place where you tick off the boxes, right? Yeah, and and and, and it's good. It, it's actually a, it's a sacrament. It's an encounter with grace, and so when I go there, really, yes, we have to say it. Yes, we have to say the sin for it to be absolved, but. There are human conditions that can interfere with this. And so let's say, I don't know, you did some serious sin in your 20s and you're in your, and back then you had a pretty dulled conscience. And later on, you kind of forget about it, that particular sin. But you really are sorry for everything you've done in your life. You're good. Yeah. Um, and, and Although my experience is most people actually hold on quite deeply to the sins of their youth. 
they constantly come back um so uh in regards to memory and all of this it, it, it you have you have to be conscious and so if you are unconscious of something it can't be held against you as long so really when you're going to confession and you're not conscious of something that's not your fault yeah. That's part of being it's a way it's actually the church's way of offering grace recognizing the frailty of the human condition mm-hmm. yeah a, a few things one you said this came up because of a dream it sounds like it came up because of a nightmare and even <laughs> though you saved us from that 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 must have been horrible so sorry <laughs> sorry yeah. about that whatever that, that was um and a, a few thoughts a few thoughts so one the church never asks us to do the impossible if you literally can't remember something you literally can't confess it and I agree with everything that Father Harrison said. Um, and I'll add that the dulling of our conscience can be our own moral failing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, by constantly committing sin, by reasoning ourselves out of the guilt or whatever, um, you are responsible uh, for the dulling of your own conscience. And that's a, you know, a thing that needs to be um, confessed. Also, it's like, okay, so what if... Um, uh, this is also why indulgences are important mercy that the church offers as well, you know, because the sin is still a sin if you don't remember it, right? There's still a consequence mm-hmm. for that. That's why the church offers all of these indulgences um, to uh, speed along our time in purgatory, to remove the um, temporal effects of sin as well. So that's another mercy that the church offers for that. And indulgences, they're just so super easy to get. Literally, if you make the sign of a cross, you get a uh, partial indulgence like it's like you read scripture for like a half hour you get an indulgence like basically almost anything you do in the pursuit of holiness apart from the fact that you're becoming holier by doing it on top of that the church also offers these indulgences and all you have to do to get any of them is in a very general sense to uh you know maybe sometimes in the morning just say like you know lord if i receive any indulgences i accept them um and then you can also do the fun thing which is like and i would like to give them to the blessed virgin mary to apply as she wants or i want to apply them um to someone who has passed away or you know whatever um but it's super super easy so that's another mercy to um help uh speed along that purification that we'll need at the end of time yeah so in the end the church says conscious for a very particular reason yeah because you can't you let's say you have amnesia and you forget and you are really contrite for everything you've done, mm-hmm. that's sufficient. Yeah. Because she recognizes the frailty of the human condition and there are things that affect memory and everything. And so at the same time, just with all that, and if you've confessed it before, you don't need to confess it again. Yeah. You are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Just trust those words. Yeah. Mercy is actually very merciful. So that's cool. Yeah. Exactly. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, let's get into some presbyteral exhortations. Yay. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn. Oh, so much. Oh, it's my favorite part. Oh, it's oh, the best part. Yes. All right. All right. All right. All right. So I have in my hands here an essay on the development of Christian doctrine by John Henry Cardinal Newman with forward by Gustav Weigel. Weigel, yeah. Um, So I read this a few weeks ago. I didn't read the whole, whole thing because um, he's got, like, I finished the book, but I skipped over the parts where he's entering into more Protestant apologetics. Okay. uh, Because 
You already it's don't bad. believe them? <laughs> well, there's that, and it's also, I, I write it for my thesis. And, yeah. Uh, because it turns out Newman, I'm really discovering, was highly influential on Ratzinger, um, much more than I had originally expected. And there's, so there's cool. a reason why he was very keen to beatify Newman himself. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's always, I always, it's one of the little things I always appreciate about Ratzinger. He did these little things that, he took advantage of his office <laughs> in the sense of like there were things that were very close to his heart that he wanted to do. So he wanted to beatify Newman himself. He wanted to consecrate the Sagrada Familia because he thought it was a great monument to beauty in the church uh, with that was modern at the same time. And so he did these little things as Pope. I mean, that's not that particular he, to him either. Like John Paul II making Divine Mercy Sunday from this right, Polish exactly. devotion Every to a universal a devotion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, this thing I love myself. Now the whole church must love. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but anyway, so. And I, I, I've really been enjoying Newman. Um, when I'm done my thesis, I'm going to go very hard into Newman. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the great little gifts of Newman, too, is that everything he wrote is public domain. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a website called the Newman Reader, and it's got everything he's written online for free to, to all his. And he's got some amazing sermons, mm-hmm. some really amazing ser- sermons. So anyways, so I was reading this because it deals with the topic of the notion of development. Mm-hmm. And which touches on the question of history, which is what I'm trying to quickly write on right now in my thesis. And um, I found it really, uh, really, it was just, it was a really good, good read. And I want, so I'm going to read, I don't want to go through the, the, the heart of the argument is that doctrine develops, mm-hmm. <laughs> which may sound uncontroversial, but it actually isn't. It's actually quite controversial because. Uh, just think of it this way like okay let's let's bring this into contemporary discussions and experiences that we often go through today within even we don't have to bring protestants into this i I think there's experiences of this in the church yeah whereby doctrine becomes an ideology and so it becomes this like um it becomes this thing that has eternally existed that is universal regardless of the historical condition of things and cares not for the particulars of a time or a place or the situations that bring it about. And it says, this is just true and you have to accept it. And because this Pope wrote this minor little thing in some papal bowl, even though it's not infallible, we are bound to obey it and no future Pope can take it away or something like that. It's a very Protestant reading into tradition. Um, And the, the classic example is like, tradition doctrine is a football and you pass the football across the centuries. It remains exactly the same shape. Whereas the idea of development of doctrine is more of an organic thing. Well, it's like the seed is still the tree, but it's grown. It's yeah. still the same thing, but now or, we have a deeper understanding or a, yeah. If, even, if you, even if you are passing a football over the centuries, yeah. it gets molded by the multiple times it's been handled. It's decaying sometimes because it's been, you get it, you know, it's just, well, maybe not, not that the, the doctrine decays, but it's just, you know, but it's just saying that it changes. It changes. Yes. Like it, it, it takes a, a more formalized shape over time. Okay. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there before we continue is that I, you know, let's say that I'm a good Catholic. One of the reasons why I like Catholicism is because things don't change. And we talk about this all the time, that, you know, the truth is the truth. And you're saying stuff changes. And that gives me great anxiety. Good. Be anxious. 
No. Oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> let me get my, my meds. I got new meds for that. Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and so this is why I want to, because I think, so this is, uh, and this is actually one of the big questions I am investigating in my thesis, right? It, to put it technically, I think I've mentioned it before. It's the problem of the mediation of history in the realm of ontology. How, how are things both the same and yet mm-hmm. exist in history at the same time. Mm-hmm. How is it that I am a human being? I am Harrison Eyre from my infancy to today, and I'm still that same Harrison, but that there has also been changes in me. My body has grown. My experiences have changed, et cetera, et cetera, over time. This is a, it, it's a, it's a classical philosophical problem, and it's something we deal with quite, uh, quite strongly today. But um, Newman... And Newman's really trying to deal with this too, because he wrote the development of doctrine as his kind of final push to see if Protestantism holds up. Mm. And in fact, um, there is a little postscript uh, that he writes here uh, just at the beginning. Since the above was written, the author has joined the Catholic Church. (laughs) 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 Because it was his final, like he, he was a man who took everything incredibly seriously and with great weight and wanted a real certainty before he made a move forward. Yeah. And so the book is really his way of investigating that final step. And he says this about Christianity. I think just because I read this, I'm reading this, I'm like, this is 19th century. He's writing this. Like he's going to be a doctor of the church because to write this in the 19th century mm-hmm. is amazing. And you'll see, I start to see how this influences Ratzinger. Yes. But also then which influences Dave Verabum. Um, mm-hmm. which is such a vital document from Saturday Vatican II. Anyways, he says, Christianity is no theory of the study or the cloister. It has long since passed beyond the letter of documents and the reasonings of individual minds and has become public property. Its sound, its sound has gone out into all the lands and its words into the ends of the world. It has from the first had an objective existence and has thrown itself upon the great concourse of man, men. Its home is in the world. And to know what it is, we must seek it in the world and hear the world's witness of it. Hmm. He's also just a great writer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So it sounds like, like, I think it says in the beginning of that quote, it's like Christianity is not a theory. It is a thing that exists in time and history. And to understand it, you have to look at it as it is and how it has been. It's, it's, it's not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not sterile, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. And, And this is one of the arguments he's going to be making. So he's saying that, one of the things he's going to talk about, though, at the same time, is that Christianity is an idea. Mm-hmm. But what does he mean by that? And it's yeah. really brilliant how he goes about it, because but that this idea is not some ethereal abstraction that exists outside of reality, but rather is only known in the midst of reality, and and reality is coming to grasp with this reality coming in, or with this idea coming into contact with humanity. Um, and so if you want to know the idea, you have to know the reality it encounters with. And so he talks about how a lot of like a lot of our doctrines that we believe as Catholics are the fruit of historical circumstance. Yeah. Right. 
like Nicaea and everything around it is the fruit of, of um, historical circumstance. Yeah. Not well, just, okay. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just to, to concretize it, you know, for example, like the whole reason why we have our doctrine of who Christ is, true God and true man, is because historically speaking, there are some people who were saying he wasn't. You yeah. know, it's, it's, that's what pushed uh, us deeper into who Christ is. Well, exactly, right? And, and so if there are people in history saying, well, actually, he's not true God or true man, we have to say, well, what does that mean? And, mm-hmm. and what, does, what, does, what, is, what is the Christian idea that has been brought to us by the person of Jesus? And how do we, how do we address that? And how do we bring that into conversation with, um, with Christianity? So I, I found this quote from the book that I think um, is really his definition of development. I think it's it's long, so bear with me, mm-hmm. but it's really good. So he says, the mind, which is habituated to the thought of God, which is a lot there, mm-hmm. of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, naturally turns with a devout curiosity to the contemplation of the object of its adoration and begins to form statements concerning it before it knows whither or how far it will be carried. One proposition necessarily leads to another, and a second to a third, then some limitation is required, and the combinations of these opposites occasion some fresh evolutions from the original idea, which indeed can never be said to be entirely exhausted. This process is its development, and results in a series or rather body of dogmatic statements till what was an impression on the imagination has become a system or creed in the reason. So there's more to the quote, but there's, oh, that is there's a lot there. Theologically juicy, man. That's so good. So uh, it, okay, I'll, I'll give my, my spin yep. on it and tell me if I've, I've heard this right. So if you're a Christian and you are thinking about the God that you love, you're going to start to, out of like, uh, curiosity or just like, you want to think about the thing that you love. And so then you'll make statements about it. And these statements are kind of like the beginning of, of theology, if you will. And then from that statement, you're like, okay, I can draw this and that. And then it may go so far as to be like, whoa, you can say this and that, but you can't say the other thing. Right. And so there's a pushback. And all of a sudden, the doctrine has, in that case, in that conversation, in that uh, pushback and forth, has developed. Yes. And so... And there's something to add to that. So mm-hmm. there's also this, there is this, um, how do I put it? The thought, so the mind is habituated to the thought of God. Mm-hmm. And it naturally is turns with the devout curiosity to the contemplation of the object of its adoration. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we consider is not the, the statements or anything like that. It's God himself. Yeah. And he actually says later on that, um, then some limitations required in the combination of these opposites occasions some fresh evolutions from the original idea, which indeed can never be said to be entirely exhausted. Yeah. So this is the thing. The idea is greater than the statements. Mm-hmm. God okay. is greater is, than the statements you say about him. <laughs> right. Now, this is, this is important. This is good. This is good fundamental theology around the concept of analogy, okay? Because mm-hmm. we have this tendency to think 
and this actually gets to the thing around mediation like mm-hmm. this whole arena says it's all mediation and it's like yeah anyways um we have this tendency to think that well god because god is greater than the statement the statement doesn't matter mm-hmm. that's heresy yeah do that you want to know why because if to, the same logic of that is to say well jesus is both god and man but because his divine nature is greater than his human nature actually his human nature doesn't matter yeah okay yeah yeah yeah. because christology is the heart of all theology mm-hmm. the east will say trinitarian theology and there's Which a truth could, there too yeah, yeah. trinitarian <laughs> theology and christology go hand in hand but even saying that something is the heart of of theology is a bit of an analogy <laughs> Right, right, exactly. I mean, God is the heart of a theology. It's things, yeah. right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, but how, who Jesus is, how his divine nature relates to his human nature has an impact on the, how we do theology. Like, yeah. Christology is the method of theology in many yeah. ways. So yeah, yeah. to say that then is to, is to say that the greater always destroys the lesser and mm. makes it irrelevant and not important. That is bad theology always. And so what he's trying to get at here is that the idea is greater but it never destroys the statements about it, mm-hmm. but rather helps us to form some contours that are necessary to understand and encounter the idea. Mm-hmm. And so this process where we make statements, we make logical implications of it, we put limitations on it, is all part of encountering an original idea. And one of the really interesting things he does in all of this is at the end of that first bit of the quote where he says that, so what was an impression in the imagination has become a system or creed in the reason, Hmm. right? He is putting heavy emphasis on imagination there. I love that, right? Because he's saying the idea. So what he's doing here, um, Pieper makes this distinction in Leisure, the Basis of Culture, Mm -hmm. where he talks about the distinction between um, the intellectus and the ratio in in um, Thomistic thought. That the ratio is reason, which has this ability to break down, to codify, to define, and to put into a box. But the intellectus is the receptive to receive the thing, the image as it is, right? So before I can make a statement, you are Father Anthony, I have to receive the form of Father Anthony in my mind. In my mm-hmm. ima- and so what Thomas calls the intellectus, uh, Newman's calling the imagination. It receives the form as it is, and that this is actually the higher form of reason. Mm. This is actually, the, this is what makes us distinct, distinct from the animals. Yeah. Because the animals, some chimps can do reason, ratio, they can do two plus two is four. They can order blocks and stuff like that. But that is that is actually our our more quote unquote baser form of reason. The higher form of reason is the imagination or the intellectus, which receives the form as itself and says this great thing, this universal, this idea that is really real that I receive through things because I can't have an impression of the idea as a human being without encountering it through something in the world. Mm-hmm. Hence his earlier statement that you have to, it's found in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's in the lived community of the church and all this stuff, right? And the scriptures, etc. So what he's trying to get at here is, but because this, but then reason, which makes statements and stuff, is the process by which humanity comes to grapple 
with the reality of the idea that hits its imagination as a corporate whole. So there's this whole corporate sense of the church here too, right? There's there's so much going on in Plyo. Yeah. Well. Sorry. I can see Mom, how this uh, affects your uh, mediation thing too. This is, uh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So I'll go on with the quote here because it's just, it's so good. everyone should read Newman. Everyone should read Newman. <laughs> so now such impressions are obviously individual, incomplete above other theological ideas because they are impressions of objects. Ideas and their developments are commonly not identical. The development being but the carrying out of the idea into its consequences. Thus the doctrine of penance may be called a development of the doctrine of baptism, yet still is a distinct doctrine, whereas the development of the doctrines of the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation are mere portions of the original impression and modes of representing it. As God is one, so the impression which he gives us of himself is one. It is not a thing of parts. It is not a system, nor is it anything imperfect and needing a counterpart. It is the vision of an object. When we pray, we pray not to an assemblage of notions or to a creed, but to one individual being. And when we speak of him, we speak of a person not of a law or manifestation. Religious men, according to their measure, have an idea or vision of the blessed trinity and unity of the Son incarnate and of his presence, not as a number of qualities, attributes, and actions, nor not as the subject of a number of propositions, but as one and individual and independent of words like an impression conveyed through the senses. Creeds and dogmas live in the one idea which they are designed to express and which alone is substantive and are necessary because the human mind cannot reflect upon the idea except piecemeal, cannot use it in its oneness and entireness or without resolving it just into a series of aspects and relations. You, you look like you're thinking. I was thinking, yes, I was leaning back and scratching my, my thin beard as I was thinking... Um, I'm trying to, so when I'm dealing with either a theological problem or even trying to get at a homily, um, I'm not sure if this would be exactly what you're, what Newman's talking about, but there's a, um, like intuition comes first almost. Yeah. You know, um, like when I'm trying to describe something about God's love, I'm not immediately thinking about God's love. I have however fallible an image of God in my mind mm -hmm. and I'm not using exactly the right words, but yeah. And then when I figure out something to preach, when I use, uh, when I make those statements, it clicks when those things fit or point to the greater thing that's in my mind, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, this yeah. idea, yeah, um, and I think I think probably a lot of people who've prayed or even like searched for a deeper understanding of God or what their vocation is or something. Th there's something about this that rings true in experience. Um, that we start from this image of God that we've received. Yeah, I think there's something to be said like you know, um, 
as we go on in life and grow in holiness, that image of God becomes clearer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always going to be imperfect in this life, but it doesn't mean it's Mm -hmm. untrue. Um, And then try to remember the rest of the quote. (sighs) It's a long one. Yeah. But those are my first thoughts. Yeah. And yeah, so exactly like uh, God and that, but like, so there's a few things here. One is when we are relating to God, mm-hmm. we are relating to him as he is. Yes. Always. Mm-hmm. Not as, oh, well, this is, this is the doc, dogma of processions that's at work in the Trinity when I'm contemplating them or anything like that. That's not what's at play here because that's the reason kind of doing its thing. No, it's simply, I adore the one God. Mm-hmm. As he is, that's con- I mean that's the heart of contemplation, which is right. that receptive um, stance towards God. But but my ability to encounter the idea, to encounter the object, is only possible through the world that has encountered it before me, mm-hmm. and has come to grapple with the idea, and that yeah. I'm formed by those ideas, and I'm re- formed by those reasons as stepping stools to encountering the one and but so then it puts the parts if you will and the whole not in opposition with each other but actually they come together you can't come to the whole without through the parts balthazar Mm -hmm. calls this um calls jesus the universal particular (laughs) Um, the con or sorry, the concrete universal, the concrete universal, right. That in Jesus, all of the meaning of human life is expressed in his person. And, um, and thus what it means to be human, our destiny and everything is found in the person of Jesus. And yet this universal stuff is made known through a particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. This is sacramentality. This is mediation. Right. And so Newman is getting onto this idea. And so, but, but, but because ideas exist, encounters happen in history and Uh because the human mind can only grapple with can only deal with things as he says in piecemeal yeah i can't come to a perfect understanding of who god is on my own but i need it in relation with others i need to Mm -hmm. work it out with others i need to theologize and pray i need to receive who jesus is from others which is tradition and so on and so on and so on and um and that this is how development works. So development is is the so like to put development in a very um, tangible way. I would say that it's the apostles saying we have seen the Lord. Right. It's the apostles on Pentecost Sunday saying this is Jesus of Nazareth whom we proclaim. Mm-hmm. And then those people who receive that formulate what this means in a deeper way this is why john's writing is deeper why because it's later Mm -hmm. it's had time to ferment in his soul longer yeah Um, and in the church community and in the church community exactly this is why there are more definitions later on than there are earlier on Mm -hmm. so this so what newman's actually trying to say is that actually we have a clearer picture wait sorry let me rephrase this we all have the same encounter with the person of Jesus, which leads us to an encounter with the Trinity, the one God. But in terms of like the reasoned expression of who Jesus is, we actually have a clearer vision of that today than we they would have had 2,000 years ago. It's implied there in the idea, but it takes time. It takes, it takes controversy. It takes, sometimes it's not even, it's not even, um, 
it's not even theological debates. It's historical circumstance that brings about the, it's the Protestant Reformation. Oh, wait, what's sacramentality? What's the church? We need to rediscover this. And yes, there's a theological debate too, but there's a political reality that forces the church's hand to have to address this and so on and so forth. And so Newman's trying to say that development is natural to ideas always and that it's a communal act and thus to be human is to be communal. And so you need a, a body of people who have all said, we've encountered this same idea and now let's work it out together. And thus Christianity is not just this individual me and Jesus thing. It necessitates the church. Yes. And it, it, it gives credence to what Christ says in that same gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and you can see this in the apostles themselves. They grow in understanding of Jesus after he ascends into heaven. Mm-hmm. They have a deeper understanding of who he is, even yeah. though they saw him face to face at one point in time. And, yeah. you know, being with all of this reflection from the church, from mystics, from the souls, from liturgies, from all this stuff, we actually have a closest, a deeper closeness to Jesus through this thing that's been developing this is a summary he's talking about um he's, he's now he has these different notes that he says what constitutes in a reasonable fashion the proper implementation of an idea in the human community mm-hmm. and which argues him into the church um, so he's talking about his second uh for his second note um and he says let's take let us take um the incarnation as the central truth of the, of the gospel okay which is already itself, he says. Like I'm thinking about that. That's interesting because the Protestant would say, "No, the cross is the central truth." Um, the cross doesn't mean anything if not for the God incarnation. Isn't there. I, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. So he says the principle of dogma, that is, supernatural truths irrevocably committed to human language, imperfect because it is human, but definitive and necessary because given from above. So when we say. So this is actually an instantiation of the principle analogy. Mm-hmm. We say Jesus Christ is true God and true man. It is true. Yeah. It is irrevocable. Mm-hmm. And God is binding himself to the particulars of human language. Does yes. it express the whole reality of that, what it's intending to say? Absolutely no. not. That the reality is greater than the words. Mm-hmm. But the words still matter. Yes. Because it's part of being human. So there's a deep anthropological realism to Newman that I really love about it. I'm like, man, this stuff, like, he is in touch with his humanity. It's really beautiful. It turns out creation is good. Right? So he's. this is what he's getting at here So with that. so And this is all important because we can always say, oh, you know what? Oh, yeah. Well, those dogmas, who cares about them? Actually, Jesus does. Um, <laughs> I knew it. Actually, Jesus does. But yeah. because this is part of being human. To say, to even say the phrase, "Oh, who needs those dogmas?" is a dogma itself, mm-hmm. and you're using a particular reason to express a universal truth that is greater than, but not not so great that it cannot be expressed in the particulars of human language. So, this doctrine of analogy comes from the Fourth Lateran Council, right? That for um, every similarity between God and nature, there's an ever greater dissimilarity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what's going on here. This is, and that's, man, that is good. That's good analogy. That's good. That's some good theology right there. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so he goes on to say the principle of faith, which is the correlative of dogma, being the absolute acceptance of the divine word with an internal assent, 
in opposition to the information, if such, of sight and reason. So he's saying that faith is that assent to the person of the word, but that dogmas are part of the are part of that. So faith being an act of the of the intellect, not reason, of the intellect, mm-hmm. opens a way for inquiry comparison and inference that is for science and religion in subservience to itself this is the principle of theology then he goes on the doctrine of the incarnation is the announcement of a divine gift conveyed in a material invisible medium it being that thus that heaven and earth are in the incarnation united that is it establishes in the very idea of christianity the sacramental principle as its characteristic yeah yeah the incarnation this is and this is why i keep on arguing like for sacramentality because everything he's saying here is is essentially saying actually if the incarnation matters so does creation yeah and so christianity as an idea if it's to be an idea is not an ideology it's not just this it's not like marxism which says we have an interpretation of reality, and so mm-hmm. we're going to impose this ideology as a way to conform humanity to a new future. Mm-hmm. Christianity says no, because of this person of Jesus, this reality says that to know God, you have to know his creation, and that God unites his life with ours in the incarnation, which means that God lifts up the created order to make himself present and known to us. And that, so you cannot be a Christian without sacramentality. Yes. Yes. That's actually what I was about to say. It's like, because it's kind of this, so I think very often uh, we're very much on the defensive when it comes to apologetics. I mean, it's part of the nature of apologetics, but like sacraments are essential to being close to God. It's how the universe works. Um, and even, I, I would argue that even that um, our Protestant brothers and sisters are connected to Christ in a sacramental way, albeit incomplete without the sacraments proper. Um, mm-hmm. Even from something as simple as um, the word of God being mediated through your preacher every week um, and using the same principles that we just discussed in preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a reminder that it's all, it, it, okay. It's a reminder that this is all one story and all one plan um that's so often it's like it's easy to separate creation and the fall from what christ has done um or to see them as opposed to each other instead of all somehow working with each other yeah and and so and yeah so he extends this incarnational principle mm-hmm. and he says like if if the incarnation is true if the sacramental principle is essential to christianity then so are words because mm-hmm. Jesus used them, yeah, and yeah. He gave us the words of Scripture, etc. And that, but that also those words communicate always a deeper sense. So the words themselves become sacraments that manifest a deeper reality, right? And this yeah. is again, this is—I mean, it's an argument I make in Mysterion because this is but this is our our life. Words are sacraments. Yeah, I'm conveying to you an idea when I say the word chair. I'm actually conveying something greater than that word is. Mm-hmm. But you are, and you're apprehending the reality, the form, through something particular. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying language then is vital to the Christian life. 
And we need to give linguistic expression to faith. I was about to go down the rabbit hole. We won't do it, but it's making me think of Anselm's argument um, <laughs> about uh, reality, like words. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other yeah. thing, but it's going to get my brain kind of trimming. Good. But anyway. um, and then he goes on. Um, so then grace is, I'm just going to kind of summarize some stuff here quickly. So yeah. Grace then is made known through words and symbols and, and material things. And that this is the law of grace requires that because God has come down to our level to take on our reality, grace now is available to us through this reality, but it cannot change us unless we are willing to mortify what he calls our lower, lower nature. And by this, he does not mean just the fact that you have a body, but he means like the fallenness of our bodies mm -hmm. um, that we have. And that and involved in this death of the natural man is necessary for revelation of the magnanimity of sin and corroboration of the foreboding of conscience. And also by the fact of an incarnation, we are taught that matter is an essential part of us and as well as mind is capable of sanctification. So in other words, that because God has taken on our humanity, now it says, because of this, we our humanity is stamped now. Like So the incarnation, there's some really big implied things here. The incarnation, he's saying, as an idea, as an, a reality we encounter as Christians, has actually changed our humanity already. Mm. It's changed the direction and orientation of all human life. And it's changed our human natures, even without baptism. Mm -hmm. Because now it says, because God has taken on our humanity, humanity has the capacity now to both reject and accept God. Mm -hmm. That it didn't have prior, it didn't have in the same way prior to the incarnation. It's why yeah. Adam and Eve aren't absolutely um, removed from God. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're not. Abs they're not damned through their mm -hmm. sin, because God hasn't taken on our humanity to give our humanity that right orientation that the, the mm -hmm. fundamental the fun you know to yeah that, that fundamental choice in front of god now humanity has that because of the incarnation and so now it puts actually a deeper burden on both us as evangelizers as as christians and on humanity as a whole to, to search for the truth because yeah. the truth has become encounterable to us now it's now an idea that's been expressed through things and so in this and so many other ways like and there's just there's way too much to go into one episode but this is just some of the good stuff I got out of reading this book. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. Good. I loved it. It's so good. So uh, I just wanted to share that because I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. I'm like, oh, I, I've read this before. I'll, I'll pick out some stuff from this. Yeah, I think you did, that worked just fine. So <laughs> thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me getting ready for my day off. You can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Do you have a theological emergency? Call 412-912-7995. 412-912-7995. Please, we need more content. Peace. God bless.